Now, we are in the midst of a, a series that we've entitled uh, Christmas Classics. And very simply, with this series, each week we're taking a, a classic Christmas film, maybe one that you grew up with, maybe one that you love watching this time of year. And what we are doing is um, we are looking at clips from that film. And we're going, hey, what is this movie saying about Christmas and how Christmas works? And then we're going, all right, that's fine. That's what the movie is saying. Let's look at what the Bible is saying in response to that. And last week we looked at the film Elf and the idea that a, a great Christmas is really found in sharing the light of Jesus with others and looking for his glory ourselves. And this week we're going to go way back in cinematography history, all the way back to 1990, right? And we're going to look at the film. That's like 30 years ago, right? We're going to look at Home Alone. Now, if you're not familiar with Home Alone, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I'll get you caught up anyway, all right? Home Alone chronicles the adventures of young Kevin McAllister when he gets left. Yeah, it's not that tricky, all right? And so, um, but uh, before we dive into Kevin's adventures and maybe what that's pointing us to about Christmas, let's take a minute and pray. Let's pray for the Blue Jean Benefit Breakfast and the mission that City Covenant is engaged in. Pray that God to be part of our time and invite him to do that. Father, thank you so much for Pastor Samil. Thank you so much for City Covenant and all that they are doing. Thank you just for the relationship that our church has with them and the way we get to partner with them in that ministry. Father, I pray for this event that's going to take place on the 10th, that you would please provide for the work that they are doing through it. God, as we take time today just to explore your response to us being home alone. Father, I pray you would open our minds and our hearts to you and to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, Home Alone, you know, it's all about the McAllister family. And what you have is they're getting ready to take a vacation right around Christmas. And it's not just a vacation with the immediate family. They're going to they're gonna go on vacation with the extended family. Anybody here ever taken a vacation with extended family? Drama, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so they all pile into the house. They're going to they're fly to Europe for a vacation. They all pile into Kevin's home the night before they're going to fly out. And true, I mean, you've got moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and, and nieces and nephews and cousins and all those people in one home. There's drama. And most of the drama, most of the relational tension centers around young Kevin. Well, through a series of unfortunate events, like they wake up late and there's chaos and pandemonium as they're trying to get out the door to catch their flight and young Kevin gets left home alone. Now, different people respond differently to being left home alone, to losing their families. Kevin's response is a little bit different. And so in just a minute, we're gonna watch a, a video clip of Kevin's response. But if you're watching online, you're not gonna get to watch the clip. Uh, it's all about copyright kind of stuff, and so you're going to get to see the announcements again, which could be just as exciting as the clip. Uh, I don't know. Talk, talk to YouTube and Facebook. Uh, it's their problem. But uh, if you're here in the room, you get to see it live. So let's watch Kevin's response here.
happy his family is gone, right? At least initially. You know, eventually he gets to the point where he figures out, hey, maybe it's not such a good thing that it made my family disappear. But by then it's too late. And, and Kevin, he's a kid. He's powerless to do anything about it. Now, even though most of the relational tension centers around Kevin, his parents, they're like distressed that he's been left home alone. And, and, and his mother, she springs into action. And, and as the, the film unfolds, you watch as Kevin has adventures home alone. You watch his mother do everything she can to get back to her kid. And really, in many ways, the story of Home Alone illustrates for us the story of the first Christmas. Not so much in the wet bandits or Merry Christmas, you filthy animal, or, you know, Kevin torturing, you know, like Hal and his partner, but in this idea of a parent who sees their child stranded home alone and does everything they can to be reunited with that child, we see the story of the first Christmas. See, in the first Christmas, God saw his children. He saw us. He saw you and he saw me separated from him, estranged from him, home alone if you would. And God sprang into action. Now, different biblical writers, they seek to capture God's response to us being home alone as they chronicle that first Christmas. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Apostle John. And something that he wrote in one of his letters to the early church about God's response to us being home alone. If you have a Bible, if you have a device and you want to pull it up, you can. It'll be on the screens as well. But we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 quite a bit today. And John begins this way. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God saw us separated from him spiritually. God saw us estranged from him relationally. God saw us home alone, if you would. And John, he doesn't pull any punches. He's really clear about what got us into that mess. John will say it was our sin. When we chose to do things our own way, when we did things that God told us not to do, when we refused to, think, to do things that God had called us to do, that led to us being home alone. But in this passage here, John is highlighting for us three specific responses on God's part to us being in that state. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to get after these one at a time. We're going to unpack each one and see how it is that God responded to you and to me being home alone. So, First response that John points us to on God's part when he sees us home alone is very simply this. It's love. Look at your favorite neighbor and tell them love. love. Yeah. God saw us home alone. He responded with love. John, John will say, God showed his love among us. John, John will say, he loved us. God's response, his first response, was love. Now, this idea of love that John points us to here. Throughout the New Testament, there are multiple different words that the New Testament writers use that we translate as love. And they do it this way because love is a complex, multifaceted kind of idea. The word that John uses here is the Greek word agape. 
And it's a word meant to use, to, to communicate this idea that God's love is unconditional. That there's nothing we have to do. There are no conditions that we need to meet in order to get God to love us. That he simply, his love, it is unconditional. When it comes to God's love, you don't need to be good enough. You don't need to be obedient enough. You do not need to be virtuous enough. You do not need to be faithful enough. You do not need to be talented enough. You do not need to be productive enough in order to be loved. All the things that we think others need to do in order to be lovable to us, all the things that we think we need to do to make ourselves lovable to other people, that's off the board here. The love is unconditional. There are no conditions we need to meet. Now, if there was anybody who was a good candidate to highlight this aspect of God's love, it was a guy like John. Because as John knew Jesus, John in many ways was unlovable. And yet he consistently experienced an unconditional love of God through Jesus, God the Son. For example, Jesus calls John to be his disciple. When he does so, John is working as a fisherman. In first century Jewish culture, that meant that John had already been kicked to the curb by the religious leaders and told, listen, you're not talented enough to be in ministry. You, you go, your daddy's a fisherman, you go be a fisherman. Go learn the family trade. You do not have the aptitude or the mind for more than that. When Jesus invites John to be his disciple and to enter into ministry with him, and, and Jesus is dissed by a, a village of Samaritans. John does not respond with great virtues like mercy and grace and compassion. John says, Jesus, you want me to call down fire from heaven and just burn those losers up? When Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm heading to Jerusalem. And they're going to crucify me there. And the disciples respond to that by having a debate amongst themselves about where each of them ranks in a power ranking of disciples. John is the guy who tries to get his mother to manipulate Jesus into giving John one of the top two cabinet positions when Jesus takes over the world the way that John expects him to. And when John discovers that Jesus didn't come in his first advent to be a conquering king. That'll be his second advent. But in his first advent, he came to be a suffering servant. And when Jesus has this mob show up and Jesus lets them arrest him, John isn't faithful. Like all the rest, he runs. He abandons Jesus. Time and time again, we see somebody in John who, who doesn't meet any of the conditions that would make him lovable. Time and time again, he's not good enough or obedient enough or virtuous enough or faithful enough or talented enough or productive enough. And yet time and time again, Jesus loves him unconditionally. In fact, in his own biography of Jesus' life, when John refers to himself in that book, John doesn't refer to himself by name. Instead, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
It's John's way of saying, hey, even when I was unlovable, Jesus loved me anyway. God's love is so unconditional that John will point out to us. He'll say, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, when we were not sending back his way what he was sending our way, God loved us anyway. Just stop and think for a minute. Do you have a season in your history where you didn't love God? Or, I don't know, maybe are you in that season right now where God's loving you, but if you're being honest, you're not loving him back. If, if I'm being honest, I had that season. And I was, in that season, I was happy to be home alone. I was running hard after things I knew God did not want in my life. I was running as fast as I could away from the things that God was calling me to. I was doing everything I could to keep God at arm's length. And it wasn't, like, don't misunderstand me. I was okay with God being there when I wanted him to do something. But I was not interested in the consistent, genuine presence of God in my life because that came with his authority. And I didn't want any part of that. I didn't want any part of anything that was going to get in the way between me and what I wanted in my life. In that season, I was glad I made my family disappear. I didn't love God, but he loved me. God's love is so unconditional that God loved us even when we didn't love him. John says, when God saw you and he saw me home alone, his first response was love. His first response was love. But John continues, and he says, not only did God respond with love, but when he saw us home alone, his second response was movement. God sees us home alone, and he responds with movement. Look at your second favorite neighbor and tell them, I'm sorry you're my second favorite neighbor, but movement. <laughs> Again, you know, home alone, is, is it, we get this illustration of how God responded in the first Christmas. In, in Home Alone, you watch Kevin's mother discover her child is home alone, and she becomes passionate about moving towards her child. We see some of that passion in this next clip from the film. Let's watch together.
mom realizes her son's home alone, she can do anything, include riding in the back of a U-Haul van with John Candy and his polka buddies, if that's what she's got to do to get to her child. And that first Christmas, God doesn't fly back from Europe. He doesn't ride in the back of a moving van. Instead, Jesus, the one who in his biography of Jesus' life, who John refers to as the Word. Jesus, the Word, who was in the beginning. Jesus, the Word, who was with God. Jesus, the Word, who was God. The word doesn't fly delta. The word doesn't ride in the back of a U-Haul. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When the triune Godhead saw us home alone, he responded with movement. God the Father asked God the Son to leave heaven with its glory and its majesty and its holiness and to come here to earth with its chaos and its poverty and its sin. Jesus wraps the the majesty of divinity in the helplessness of humanity as he's born as a baby in a manger. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John says, when God saw us home alone, he responded with movement. He sent his one and only son into the world. And with that movement, we see our third and final response on God's part. And that last response is sacrifice. Sacrifice. John says it this way. He says, God the Father sent God the Son to be an, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. To be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, just stop and ask yourself, what does John mean here when he says that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice? What John is doing is he's, he's pointing us to this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of things that began all the way back in the Old Testament. Now, this is the second time in his letter that John uses this terminology. The first time he does so is way at the beginning of the letter. And when John does so the first time, he gives you all this context to help you understand what this terminology means. And then he assumes that by the time you're reading it the second time in the letter, you read it the first time in the letter, and you understand what it means the second time because you had the, all the, the run-up to it the first time. So to help us understand it, since we're at the second time, again, you can flip back to 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to look at what John says as he runs up to this the first time he uses this language. John says this. He says, this is a message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So in classic Johnonian fashion, he uses poetic language to describe who God is. He's like, listen, God is light. He is good. He is holy. There's no darkness in him. There is no evil. There is no sin in God at all. And then John says, if we claim we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness. There's this consistent manner of our life that reflects darkness. John says, we lie 
and do not live out the truth. John's like, listen, I just got done telling you, God is completely free from sin. If you say you are tight with God, and all the while, the consistent manner of your life reflects something where you are knowingly, happily, consistently swimming in the deep end of the sin pool, you're just lying to yourself here. John continues. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if the consistent manner of our lives reflects who God is in his person and who we are in our person, then we're going to have fellowship with one another. Because the thing that gets in between us the most is sin. And, and then this is very important. John says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, this is where John is beginning to look back to the Old Testament ideas and how Jesus fulfills them. If I was a Jew living in relationship with God in the Old Testament, and I, and I sinned, I did something that God had told me not to do in the Mosaic Code. What I would need to do is get the, the animal that the code prescribes, take that animal to the priest, and then the priest would literally sacrifice that animal in my place. Me, the guilty person, I would place my hand on that innocent animal. And the priest would slay that animal. Its blood would be shed for my sin. And every time I sinned, I'd have to get another animal and go back to the priest, and we would repeat this process. And this is how it worked until the first advent of Jesus. Jesus comes, and he is the ultimate sacrifice as he lays down his life, as he dies on a cross. And all of a sudden, once and for all, my sin is paid for. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies me from all my sin. Now, John's said a lot here. So he's begun to lay this foundation for where he's going to get to our terminology. He's not quite done yet. Hang in there with John. This is what he says next. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If, if I'm like, listen, I've, I've never been home alone. John's like, you're just lying to yourself. Everybody's been there. But then John gives us very good news. He says, but if we confess our sins, if we will agree with God about our guilt in this thing, God is going to be faithful. He's going to be just. And he'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This whole idea of like, oh, I've never done anything wrong. I'm a good person. John's like, not only am I lying to myself, but I'm making God out to be a liar. Now, John's almost there. Here's what he says next. He says, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. John's like, listen, I am trying to keep you from stepping in it anymore. The idea that, that, that John is saying that you know, we're going to be sinless is silly. He's, he's just got done saying it. Everybody does this. If we say we're, you know, we've never done this or we don't do this, we're lying to ourselves and making God out to be a liar. He's like, no, everybody does this. I'm trying to keep you from doing it any more than you absolutely have to. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When we sin, Jesus is there in our corner. Jesus, he's like an attorney 
advocating to the judge on our behalf, asking the judge to forgive us as we agree with the judge about our guilt in this. Now, how can Jesus advocate that way on our behalf? John tells us it's because of what he's done. It's because he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's our language. John says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. John says, hey, when we sin, we find ourselves home alone. But when we sin, we find Jesus advocating to the Father on our behalf. Jesus, the righteous one, advocating to the Father on our behalf, asking the Father to forgive us as we agree with the Father about our guilt. And Jesus can do this because Jesus, the innocent one, laid down his life in the place of the guilty. And now his blood is able to purify us from all of our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. John says, when God saw us home alone, he responded with sacrifice. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was born as a baby to begin a journey where he would die in our place. Jesus came to us in the cradle so that he could go for us to the cross. In that first Christmas, God saw you, he saw me, he saw us home alone. And at great expense and sacrifice to himself, God moved in our direction as he sent his son. And God did so, not because we loved him, but because unconditionally he loves us. That's God's response to us being home alone. This Christmas, if there is any gift that God could have us receive, it would be the gift of forgiveness that he made possible as he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so today, if you're here in the room today, if you're watching online and you're at a place where you realize, I need that. I want that. I want to say yes to that gift. In just a moment, we're going to pray. And I would invite you to pray with me the way that John encouraged us to pray when he said, if we will confess our sin, God will be faithful. He's going to do what he said he was going to do. He will be just. God has not swept this under the rug. Justice has been served. We will confess our sins. He will be faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that when you saw us home alone, that you loved us, that you moved towards us, and that you made a way for us to be forgiven in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Father, for some of us today, 
just we realize we need this. We want this. And so today, we want to pray the way that John encouraged us to pray. We just want to confess to you that we have sinned, that we are broken, that we have gone our own way. Thank you that your response to that was unconditional love anyway. Thank you that you sent Jesus. Today we want to put our hope, our faith, our trust in him. We want to surrender all of who we are to him. We want to begin this journey where we follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.